And I'd love for you to open that Bible to the book of Acts, if you could. Praise God. We're continuing our journey through the sermons in the book of Acts, the powerful sermons that shook the world, that opened the world to the gospel. The book of Acts, as we've said before, is not the story of a different church. When we say the early church, that's not a different church. It's just the church in its early stage. We're still the church, amen? You guys sure about that? We're still the church, right? We still have the Spirit of God in us. We've still got the Word of God on us. We've still got the power of God. And so what we need to do is to see these not just as a cool history, but as a, an example of how the gospel can can break through walls and how, how it can uh, penetrate uh, what seems to be walled-off cultures and, and people that have, their, gu- have their, their guards against God or whatever, or might be misled about God like many of us have been, uh, how the gospel is so good that it builds a bridge and uh, it, it, brings us to Jesus. it brings us to God. Jesus, through his sacrifice, through the cross and the resurrection, he brought us across a chasm we couldn't cross on our own. And, and so in the book of Acts, we see these, these ones going out, going out and, and, and ministering this truth. And we've been seeing the progression, because if you've been with us the past couple months, you probably noticed at the beginning of the book of Acts, as they speak to the Jewish people, they're primarily talking about this is what the Scripture says, and Jesus is the fulfillment of those Scriptures, of the law and the prophet. He's the Messiah that we've been waiting for. But recently, we've seen them go into Gentile places, places that didn't have a history or a background of the Scripture, that didn't have any expectation of the Messiah, people that believed in a pantheon of gods, many gods who weren't very good gods. They were just as corrupt and wicked as us. We see how the gospel reached them. How many times, like in Lystra and Athens, Paul didn't say, well, you know what, uh, Moses talked about this because those guys have no clue who Moses is. So he goes back to what they do know. Somewhere deep inside them, there is a knowledge that there's a creator. Somewhere in you, you know that there's a creator. You know that you were created. You know something had to come from someone. And then that, with that knowledge of a creator, knowing that he is not just a creator, he is a living God, and that he's the judge of all, that there will be a day when he makes, he causes justice, to, leads justice to victory. There'll be a day when we all stand before that creator and give an account. And the gospel, in every culture, in every situation, it speaks well, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 16. After the council at Jerusalem, we've got Paul and Barnabas. They went and they were very excited to share the good news with the churches that the church had, is now on the same page and they all believe that Gentiles can be saved, that they don't have to become Jews and then Christians, that they can just receive Jesus. As Peter said, they get saved the same way we all got saved, by faith in Jesus Christ. Something happened between Paul and Barnabas. They, uh, Paul uh, and Barnabas had taken Barnabas' nephew, John Mark, along with them. And John Mark had trouble on the mission field. And some of you might have experienced the first time you tried something, the first time you stepped out into something new and difficult that you experienced that it wasn't so easy. Maybe you were the one that said, I need to call my mom. I need to go home. That's what John Mark had to do. 
And so Paul said, I can't take this guy with me. We're going into places that are dangerous. We're going into places where we're the tip of the spear. I can't have a kid with me that gets homesick. I can't have a kid that's double-minded. So send him home. Barnabas says, I think we need to work on this young man. I don't think God's done with him. Now you might say, well, who's right? They're both right. They're both a little wrong probably in how they handled it, but they're both right. Paul went on his way. And Barnabas, this caused them to depart, but it, it, it wasn't so bad because Barnabas actually stuck with John Mark, and John Mark became kind of a, a hero. He wrote one of the books of the Bible here. The book of Mark was written by him. He actually is referenced later in Paul's letter to Timothy. He says, actually, bring John Mark with you. He's very useful to me in the ministry. So thank God for Barnabas's that will stick with someone who can't hack it yet who's not ready to be called up to the majors and going to keep working on them and keep encouraging them. And thank God for people like Paul that uh, even though you might say, well, Paul shouldn't have been so, so rough on John Mark. Well, Paul knew that there are some places I have to go that we have to know for sure where we're going and why we're doing it. We can't, we can't be double-minded once we're there. Thank God for both of them. So Paul and Barnabas have split. Paul picks up Silas, which is a young guy, Timothy, who's a young guy, both of these young guys had Greek fathers, and so they kind of have a Jewish-Gentile outlook, and they both become believers in Jesus Christ. So Paul takes them along, and Luke joins the journey, and Luke is a doctor who's also a very competent historian, and thank God for Dr. Luke, because, because of Dr. Luke, we have the book of Luke, and we have the book of Acts, which if you read the, the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, you come to realize that Luke and Acts are kind of meant to be read like part one and part two. Acts begins with him saying, my first account, I told you of all of Jesus began, all that Jesus began to do in his ministry. His first account ended with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Most of us think that that was the end of Jesus' ministry, but Luke says, no, that was just the beginning. Let me tell you about the rest, and he starts writing the book of Acts. Because the church is the continuation of Jesus' ministry. So they start to go up, and they're going through Tur what now is Turkey. And they start to go up into Asia Minor. There's a lot of big cities there. They could push north into Bithynia. They could go into Byzantium. Uh, they could go, which you know, later became known as Constantinople, and, and then now Istanbul. They could have gone there, but the Holy Spirit said, don't go there. And rather than argue with God and say, but you told us to preach everywhere, they listened. Thank God. And they didn't go. And because they didn't go, they were in the right place at the right time to get a vision from God where a man appeared to Paul in, in the middle of the night. He sees a vision of a man from Macedonia who says, come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia was a Roman province at the time, which was like the north, northern Greece and, and north of Greece. And so Paul goes up into the cities of Macedonia, begins to minister. And we're going to pick up when he's in Philippi. Can anybody guess who Philippi was named after? I'll give you three guesses. What's that? Did somebody say pie? Nah. I knew we shouldn't let the youth sit together. Philip, named after King Philip, uh, Philip of Macedon, who was Alexander the Great's dad. And uh, this place got a lot of history. 
it became a Roman colony. It found favor. Octavian, after uh, he won the battle against uh, um, his enemies in the civil war that happened after Julius Caesar's death. I'm trying not to bore you with this, but just give me a little context. Octavian, who later became known as Caesar Augustus, granted them a special Roman outpost colony status. And so they kind of had this special status amongst the, the far-off places as a place that, you know, Rome had honored. They had special privileges. And this is going to become relevant when you find out why they're a little nervous about what Paul and Silas are doing. Paul and Silas get there, and they try to, they do what they always do. Let's find this synagogue. Because Paul's method was, we preach to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. So the first thing they did in every city was find believers in God, who were the Jews. They usually call them God-fearing people. When you see in the book of Acts, God-fearing people, it doesn't mean they believe in Jesus yet, because most of the time you see that phrase, they're people about to get saved. But God-fearing means they believed in one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're looking for it. They actually believe in him. They don't just say they believe. They actually believe. It's, there's no coincidence. Those are the people that usually got born again. So he looks for the God-fearing people. There's no synagogue. He finds the closest thing he can find is some leading ladies, some, some uh, uh, women who are kind of important in the city have converted and become believers in God. And they're meeting outside the city by the river in a place called the place of prayer. When they go to this place, they find a lady named Lydia who uh, was well-respected in her community. She was a businesswoman, and she's kind of leading the movement. Her whole household comes to believe as they, the gospel is preached to them. Her family gets saved. I mean, it's an awesome thing. And then uh, Paul and Silas go in and out of the city, and once they're going back out to this place of prayer, there's this girl that keeps following them around. Everywhere they go, this girl keeps following them around, and saying something that you might think is an okay thing to say, but there was something off about it. Let's pick up there in Acts chapter 16. And I'm, I'm going to skip right down to verse 16. So Acts 16, 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. Now that spirit of divination, literally in the Greek it says a spirit of python. You might say, well, what in the world? Why, what, she had a snake on her? What, what is this about? Well, this is a specific term that the Greeks knew very well. I don't know if you guys have heard of the oracle at Delphi. Anybody ever heard the oracle at Delphi? The oracle at Delphi was a, a, a lady, and it, the, the title was passed on through centuries, would be a woman that would be at Delphi in this temple, and she would as they believed, be possessed by the spirit of Apollo, who was one of their gods. See, it was at that place that they believed Apollo had slain the, a, a serpent, and so they, they, they believed this place had a sickly smell like the smell of a dead snake. Some scholars believe it was actually a natural gas leak, which could explain why she got high <laughs> and starts prophesying. You might say, well, oh, she was just high. no. If you look at every culture, the demonic world and the drug world interact. The reason being is because you have natural walls that even before you knew Jesus, there's natural mental walls that kind of keep foreign thoughts out that you kind of go, that's not me talking. But you lower your inhibitions and things can take advantage of that. So you look at these tri you know, certain tribal cultures in the Amazon, uh, over all the way to Africa, all the way to Asia, there, there are all these cultures where... They ingest or, or chew on a substance or an herb 
They get all, whoo. And then they start to have demonic visions and all these experiences. Well, I mean, it's, it's no different than a guy taking LSD and saying, I saw the world clearly all of a sudden. Right? What's happening is your inhibitions are lowered, your mind is altered, and the devil knows how to take advantage of that. So this girl might have, might have inhaled some fumes, got high, and all of a sudden, she's opened up to the spirit world. She's not faking it. You know, I know there's psychics out there that are just as fake as fake as fake can be, but I also believe there are people that are being possessed. So not to get off on that, but to tell you that they believe that this slave girl had the same gift, the same spirit that the Oracle at Delphi did. And the Oracle at Delphi, the Greeks honored. I've been to Delphi. And do you know what? At Delphi, there are all these big, giant buildings all over that are immaculate. And each one is from a different Greek city. Because the Greek cities at the time, there wasn't like the nation of Greece there were city-states before the Romans took over, different city-states. You had Athens, you had Sparta, you had Thebes, you had all these different places, right? And so they all had these treasure houses at Delphi because that's how much they honored this prophetess, that they brought their treasures to this place. And they would go up and they'd say, what do the gods say? You ever wonder why Leonidas, uh, at the famous Battle of Thermopylae, why he only had 300 of his best guys with him? Now, they had over 7,000 people with the Greeks, but at some point he dismisses all those guys. He's got 300 Spartans and maybe 900 uh, hillets, and the Spartans stand alone. You go, why are there only 300? There's a lot more warriors. It's because Leonidas went up to the oracle at Delphi and said, should we go to battle? And she says, well, you're going to die. So he goes, well, I'm only taking the boys with me that don't have any sons. So they honored. They wouldn't go to war unless she said it was okay. They wouldn't do it. Like they, they really believed that the gods speak through this girl. So in Philippi, a couple guys think they've hit the jackpot. They've got the golden goose. This girl has the same spirit. And she can tell future. She can read omens because she's got the spirit of Python. But we know that's an evil spirit that's tormenting this girl. She is twice a slave because she's a literal slave to these men. And she's a slave to an evil spirit that's tormenting her. She follows them around and she says this. These are the men, are the bondservants of God, the most high God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And we go, so far so good. That's awesome. We got a hype girl with us, right? <laughs> she's following us around. She's, she's, put, she's going on Instagram Live saying, these guys are great. You should follow but in reality, there's something off about this. You can say all the right thing, but be in the wrong spirit. Paul becomes greatly annoyed in his spirit. He literally becomes troubled in his spirit. Something isn't right here. He lets it go on for a while, but at some point, he becomes annoyed and turned and said to the spirit. Notice he, he says it to the spirit. He's not even talking to the girl. He says it right to the spirit. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. He didn't spend five hours asking its history, recording it for, for his YouTube show. He just cast it out. Come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Praise the Lord. Does anybody, does anybody in the room think this is bad news? A girl just got set free. Right? This is a good deed. Not everybody's going to think so, though. Here's what happens. 
when the, her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone. And this is another topic for another time. But if you go through the Gospels in the book of Acts, it is shocking how demonic possession and greed go together. How the riots in Ephesus were all about our money will be gone. How there were times where Jesus ministered to someone and, 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 and the real problem was, well, if, I, if, if, she, if this person's free, that we lose our money. This was, this was a, a continuing issue that they rose up against. They said our hope of profit was gone. She was nothing more than a, an object to them. They didn't care about her. And they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them where? Into the marketplace. It's about the money, right? They dragged them to the agora, the marketplace, and when they brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. What does them being Jews have to do with anything? I'll tell you what. If you want to get people riled up, hit the racism button just a little bit. Not a lot of Jews in this city. You want to get them real nervous? Talk about the immigrants. Talk about the Jews that are causing trouble, right? So they start saying, being Jews. And you know what? The Philippian people at the time, not big fans of the Jews. So all of a sudden, they're like, yeah, I don't like that. Causing trouble? Being Jews? <laughs> I don't like that. Already, it has nothing to do with this slave girl being healed. But they're pushing the buttons, right? Oh, have being Jews. And they're proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. Now these guys are way up in Philippi. They don't, most of them don't have Roman citizenship. But remember, they're a special little Roman colony. And so what are they saying? They want the magistrates to know, number one, these people are causing trouble. And what's the magistrate's number one job? Keep the order. They're throwing the city into disorder. Oh, that's not good. What else? <laughs> the magistrates want to be on the Romans' good side. So these guys go, Psh. they're telling us to do stuff what Romans shouldn't do. <gasps> Well, they don't want the Romans to be mad at us. So immediately they say, you got to seize these guys. The crowd rose up together against them. The chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. There's a group of people. If you look in uh, the original Greek that's written in, you find out there's a group of people that are meant to keep the order. And the, they, they go back. And the symbol for these guys was a rod in the middle of a bundle of sticks bound together. The Latin word for this is fasciae. Okay, it might sound like something to you. Because Mussolini, before World War II, started a movement where he tried to resurrect this old Roman thing. And his symbol was a group of sticks bundled together around a rod, and they called it the fascist movement. The word fascist just means bundle of sticks. That's what it was. So these guys, that was their title. They're the fascists. <laughs> Fun title, right? Didn't have the same connotation it has today, but their job is to keep the order. And it's those rods that they used to beat these guys. They beat them with rods, and when they struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Verse 24, and he having received such a command, and it seems to me it might have been an unusual command because it seems like he went out of his way to make sure they were super secure, threw them in the inner prison. Fasten their feet in the stocks. Now you'd think just putting some guys in a prison cell, you don't need to go overboard and put their feet in stocks. These are preachers, not soldiers. Well, that's what they did. They put their feet in the stocks. 
But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, hey, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And he called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he, he brought him out of the inner jail. He brings him out into the courtyard where he probably has a house there where his family is. They've got a, a pool there where they can bathe. He brings, brings Paul and Silas in that area. And at some point he calls all his family and says, you guys got to check this out. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. That means his whole extended family. And he took them at that very hour of the night, washed their wounds. Immediately he was baptized in the same pool. He's washing their wounds. He's like, they're like, well, there's water. Let's just baptize you right here. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Now, now think about this. You can't, you can't get saved on behalf of your family, right? You can't just say, all right, I'm saved, so all of you are going to get baptized. No, I mean, it meant all of them believed. So we've already seen that God worked with this group of ladies that were meeting outside the city to pray. God moved on them such a way that their whole family gets saved. Husband, kids, all that. So Philippian church starts there. And then, now we've got a new addition to the Philippian church, which is the jailer in his whole household. And it's starting with these family groups. It's starting with these household groups. And when this happens... They all get baptized. They all believe. And then when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates are sent to release you. Thought it was good news. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, well, they've beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans. And this is the first time he's dropped this little nugget on them. See, the Romans had a rule with places like Philippi. We're not going to micromanage you. You can take care of misdemeanors and stuff. And to them, a good punishment for a misdemeanor is give them a good beating, let them sit in jail and, and suffer for a bit, and then let them go. So they kind of said to the Philippians, you can do what you want. Just if there's a Roman, you can't beat them without a trial. You can't treat them like you treat all your other peasant Philippians. If they're a Roman citizen, they get special Roman rights. And this is the first these guys are hearing that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. Paul says, we're men who are Romans and you've thrown us into prison and now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and bring us out. Uh-oh. So the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and when they brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. <laughs> Please, leave the city. So, so you know what Paul did? He moseys over to the house of Lydia, does not rush out of the city, because <laughs> what are you going to do to me now, right? You got a lawsuit on your hand, buddy. If I tell Caesar about this, you're in trouble. So Paul just goes over to the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them, and then they left. I want you to go back to what 
shifted everything. They go into prison. They've been beaten. What do they do? They begin to sing and praise. They begin to sing and praise. I've said this before, and I really do believe, while I really believe that this is true, probably a thousand sermons you've heard about how praise opens doors. I believe this. It's important for you to know that. Shakes chains loose, opens prison doors, right? But I want to tell you something else. Paul and Silas don't know that that's going to happen. They don't know if we praise, the prison doors will open. This has never happened. Now, God's delivered Peter before. God's delivered the apostles before. But to them, praising wasn't just a, a thing they could do to get out of jail. That's not why they're praising God. The result of praise is things shake off. The result of praise is the enemy is, is, is thrown out. But, but I want to tell you, that's not why they're praising, just so they can get out of prison. If that had been why they were praising, they would have left the moment their chains fell off. Why are they praising God? Because he deserves it. That's what we do, we praise. That's what we do, we praise. They trusted him. They believed in him. They said the fact that I just got beaten and am put in prison doesn't change who God is. We're going to praise him right now. They probably also needed to praise for their own benefit because I'll tell you, when you just got the snot beat out of you and thrown in prison for something good that you did, remember, all they did was help a girl. They got thrown into prison unjustly, unjustly. They're in prison. They're not sitting there in prison going, hey, this is injustice. Did we mention we're Romans? You better let us out. Go get the manager. What are they saying? They're singing praise to God. Songs and hymns and prayers to God. They're praising God. That's not your first instinct in the world, but it is our first instinct as believers. And I want you to notice the little phrase hidden there that says, and the prisoners were listening. See, we've been talking about sermons that the church preached. I want you to know that their prayer and their praise was a sermon they preached to that whole prison and to the jailer. When everything's going really, really nice and you praise God, the world just says, well, of course. I'd be happy too. But when a believer in the midst of adversity, in the midst of all hell breaking loose against you, says none of these things move me. I will praise God. He's good, and his mercy endures forever. This hasn't shaken me off my foundation. When you're praising God, and believe me, if you want to think that Paul and Silas are just sitting here full of just nothing but, but bubbles and, and, and unicorns and rainbows, I think i got to tell you, they're just like us. <laughs> I hit an age. You know when I was in kids' camp and youth camp? You could have your leg bent behind your head, and you'd be like, wow, I'll shake that off. I'm okay. You get to a certain age, and you sleep on the pillow a little awkward, and you wake up and go, oh, I'm going to have to call in. For, I can't go to work today, right? I mean, I mean, it's not that bad. But Paul and Silas have been through a bit. They just, I mean, come on. They just, they're not just having to sleep in an uncomfortable place. They've been beaten severely with rods. They've been punished unjust, unjustly. They're in prison knowing that bad people did bad things to them. And we all know from experience, when you experience injustice, all you want to do is talk about it. You want to talk about it every chance you get. You're in the shower ranting and raving. And then we've been given a terrible tool 
to amplify our ranting and raving, which is social media. So now we don't just say it in the shower, we say it to the world. You take your worst moment and you amplify it to everybody. Paul and Silas could have amplified that to the prison. Instead, what they do is they say, we're going to amplify praise. We're going to praise God. What was done to us was wrong. What was done to us was unjust. What was done to us was demonic. But let's praise God. And the prisoners were listening. Isn't it a powerful thing that when the earthquake came and the prison doors opened and the chains fell off. Now, I know Philippi has earthquakes. But come on. What are the odds that an earthquake hits right then? right there, and just does all the right things. Pops the bar off the prison door. Pops the chains and the shackles off their hands. Come on, guys. That's not just an accidental earthquake. That's a move of God. How is it that none of the other prisoners left? What made them stick around? They're listening. They're looking at Paul and Silas and going, if they're not moving, I'm not moving. What's going on? These guys are something different. See, the sermon they preached is a sermon you can preach. And it may not be get on a soapbox and start preaching like you think preaching, but it is a sermon you preach to the world when the enemy hits you with all he's got and you refuse to stop praising and you sing and you rejoice and you say, you can't steal my joy. You can't steal my praise. You can't steal my, my, you can't steal my trust in God. You can't shake my faith. I am standing on this. I'm not moving from this. I am choosing to praise God. The prisoners are listening to that. Everybody can praise God when things are good. But this must be real. There must be something to this if you guys are still praising right now. Been to a lot of sporting events. Different places. Been to some cool baseball games, cool hockey games, football. You guys know I like to go to a good soccer game. It's a lonely life being a soccer fan in Lloydminster. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. One of the coolest things to do every now and then, when I'm with Moses and Tia, we just sit in the regular section where you can sit. But every now and then, I'll go and stand in the supporter section. Now, the supporter section is awesome in soccer games. No other sport is quite like this. In a soccer game, there are supporters that sit in a certain section of the stadium. And if you're a fan of the other team, you don't get to sit there. I say sit, but nobody sits. Your chair, the only time you might use your seat is at halftime eating your nachos. Otherwise, you are standing the whole game. You're standing and you're chanting and you're singing. And you never sit down. You jump, you chant, you sing. If you sit down, get out of here. What are you doing? Come on, guys. It's a supporter section. We chant, we sing, we shout. So you, you have these chants, and, you know, you chant when your team's winning. You chant when they're struggling, and, and that crowd lifts the players. You know, it, it, it provides an atmosphere. But there's a certain chant you'll hear, in, in, especially in like in English and uh, uh, German stadiums. There'll be a certain chant that one supporter group will kind of speak to the other when the, the other supporters are sitting in another part of the stadium, and it's a taunt. Kind of like our ancestors used to taunt each other over the battle lines. It's a taunt, and here's how it goes. You only sing when you're winning. You only sing when you're winning. You only sing when you're winning. That's the whole chant. That's the whole song. I'm not trying to sing it for you because this is church, and I want you to think well of me. But you go, you only sing when you're winning. It's a great way to taunt the other side because here's the taunt. What it's saying is you guys are plastic. Your victory is so fragile that when the scoreboard says you're behind, 
you get deflated and stop singing. So the fans, they'll taunt the other guys, go, you only sing when you're winning. And I just think about how, as believers, that should be something that's never said of us. The truth is, there are two scoreboards you could look at. There's the scoreboard that the world has where you look and you go, looks like I'm behind. And then there's the scoreboard, the true scoreboard, the real truth, which is the, the, the divine heavenly scoreboard, which reflects what Jesus has already won. We are standing in victory already. We're not behind. We're not losing. We're standing in victory. You might think, you, I mean, come on. I just got beat with many rods, thrown in prison unjustly, and me and my buddy are shackled. We can't preach. We're stuck in prison. And at midnight, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing praise, not just songs of, not just the blues. Right? We're not, you know, didn't get their harmonica out. Just talk. I'm in the Philippian prison. It smells really bad. You know, no, they're, instead, they're singing praise. God is so good. He's great and mighty. They're probably singing some psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. They're praying. And once again, you could say, are they praying for their release? I'm sure that came up. But I bet they're praying for more than that because if, if the only thing they were praying is we get out, once again, once the chains fell out, once the chains fell off, they might have said, well, our prayer's answered. Let's get out of here. But instead, they stayed because there was something more valuable than getting out of prison which was the opportunity to preach the gospel to the jailer. And they stuck around. See, that's, you do those kind of things when you really trust God. When you really trust God that he's got me, he's got this, that I'm his, that there is nothing that could happen to me, around me, or whatever, that, that, is, that is, is not out of his domain, that, that I am his. And so the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. He will direct their path. I have entrusted my life to him. God will be glorified in me. When you believe that, you're willing to put yourself in a situation where it feels dangerous, where it feels stupid, where it feels foolish, because you trust God. I won't stop praising. I won't stop singing. I won't stop rejoicing. The Bible is full of examples of believers that believed in the midst of tribulation with much joy in the Holy Spirit. There is a Holy Spirit joy that comes that has nothing to do with the outside circumstances. The world gets happy when things are good. Believers get joyful because something's on the inside of you. And it changes the things around you changes circumstance. It changes your situation. They get out of prison, but they don't leave prison. And in this, we don't hear what happened to the prisoners, but we know they didn't leave. I got to believe some of them got born again. Jailer and all his house get born again. Then the magistrate said, we've got to let these guys go. And Paul says, you're going to do it publicly because you beat us publicly. Now, this isn't Paul being petty. You might think he's just being petty and just being a small man. But really what he's doing is he's, he's, he's understanding that the church needs to have a righteous reputation in the city. The Bible tells us, keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles so that when they slander you, they'll glorify God in the day of visitation. You can't get around the fact that the world will slander you. They slandered Paul and Silas here. 
Every single believer that was ever put to death for their faith. And guys, it was all the apostles except for John died violent deaths. Every single one of them died on pretty bad charges. Atheists, arsonists, disruptors of the culture, all these different things. Things were said about them that weren't true. If they made that their obsession, guys, the New Testament, I've said this before, but the New Testament would be nothing but complaints. Instead, the New Testament is life to us. Because they chose to preach truth rather than just rant about the injustice. Listen, injustice needs to be addressed. But I want to tell you what needs to be addressed above all. It's, it's the truth of who Jesus is. It's the truth of who God is. And in their praise, they preach the greatest sermon they could preach. Your coworkers are watching you. Your coworkers are watching you on a bad day. Your family's watching you when stuff hits you. Your kids are watching you. When you're not getting along with each other, how do you handle this? When a bill, one more bill, you have more month than you had money, and this bill comes in the mail, and they can see your forehead crinkle. They can see, they can see that, oh, man, what do they see coming out? What do they hear coming out of your mouth? What do they see? I'm not telling you to fake it in front of your kids. I'm not telling you, you you should just pretend everything's okay. I'm telling you they should be able to see this bothers dad. (laughs) But he made a choice. He made a choice to turn and praise God. Mom and dad got their hands together. And I'm, I'm talking about parents, but I want to tell you, single, what are your friends seeing? What are your, what are your coworkers seeing? Are they seeing you in a mo- moment where you go, they can, they can see it hit you, they can see that it wasn't easy, and all of a sudden they see you make a choice. I am going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to trust God here. I believe God's coming through. I believe my God is greater. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to praise him right now. And I don't tell you, when you start to praise God, it's like pulling the picture back. David said, I am surrounded at all sides by my enemies. I feel that the walls of death are closing in on me. Then he talks about coming into the presence of God. Comes to talk, and this is many times in the Psalms where they talk about coming into the presence of God and then feeling like you were lifted up on a rock so you could see above the heads of your enemies. In this particular chapter, he says, now that he's come and he's worshipped and he's praised, he says, surely you've brought me into an exceedingly broad place. He was feeling like the walls of death were closing in on him, and I'm sure you've probably felt something like that. But now he feels like he's coming to an exceedingly broad place. Does that describe a certain type of anxiety you've experienced where all of a sudden you're surrounded and you can't breathe and you feel it's getting tighter and tighter and the bill collectors are coming and the kids are acting up and friends betrayed me and all these different things come at you at the same time and you feel like it's all coming in at once and I just can't handle it, I just can't handle it. But when I praise God, I'm lifted above the heads of my enemies. I can see further. You bring me into a broad place. Praise draws the picture back and says, this is happening right now, but what's bigger than this? God is bigger than this. What Jesus did is bigger than this. Victory that has already been won for you is bigger than this. What Jesus has done, you are standing in the victory of Christ. The scoreboard that the world has says you are losing, but the scoreboard of heaven says we've already won. And which one are you going to celebrate? Or do you only sing when you're winning? I really want to chant that, but I'm not going to. 
It's meant to be many, many um, not very good singing men and women singing together uh, in unison. It's not meant to be sung by one guy alone, so I'm just going to leave you with that. Thank you. I'll have to teach you that song, buddy. It's really simple. It's got, uh, you only sing when you're, it's got six words. That's the whole thing. You ever wonder why we sing, you, do, you, do you know when the scripture says we should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? It says here that they sang hymns. So people in the modern day go, that church there, they don't sing hymns. Hang on, guys. A hymn isn't a hymn because it's in a hymnal from 1800 and whatever. Those songs are great. I love those songs. They're timeless, but that's not what makes them a hymn. A hymn is a unifying song, right? So when Amazing Grace was written, it was modern. Now, I still sing Amazing Grace. It's because some of those songs are so timeless, we need to sing some of those songs again. But don't think a hymn means an old song. Because it wasn't an old song in the New Testament. It's not, it wasn't an old song when those songs were written. A hymn means a unifying song. A song that unifies the congregation together. So one of the cool things about when we sing together is not that it just drowns out all the bad singers. One of the things that it means when we sing together is that we are brought together in unity in a spiritual place of victory. And there is something so powerful about a group of people that are saying the same thing at the same time. The Bible talks about that agreement. Jesus talks about that agreement. Do you ever wonder why Joshua and the Israelites, the last time they circled the city, God said, don't say a word. Nobody say a word. Because there wasn't to be no conflicting sound until they were all lifting their voice together in unison. The cool thing is I preach a sermon, and uh, you might say, I remember one thing he said. I'm not going to quote it just right, but I remember this. But when we sing a song, you, not only do you remember those lyrics, but we're all singing them at the exact same time. That's why it matters the song we sing. It's, that's why we don't pick a song just because the beat's good. We've got we to pick it based on the content. Because when we sing those songs together and, and praise is lifted together, there's people in the crowd that are having a great day. But there's people in the crowd that feel like all I could do is drag myself to church today. But when we sing those songs together, we're one. And our song is lifted to heaven. And as one, we turn our eyes from our trouble. We turn our eyes from even what we think are our temporary victories. And we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to our God, the creator of heaven and earth, and we begin to sing songs of praise. We sing hymns of victory. We sing even songs at times of lament that turn to praise. Like the Psalms that start out pretty rough, but they bring you to a place of trusting in God. By the end, there's victory. And you hitchhike with those Psalms. You say, I feel like David right now. I don't want to bash anybody's head against a stone, but I feel like David right now. And you begin to sing those songs at the same place he's singing those songs. And you come to the same place of saying, yet my hope will be in the Lord, the God of my salvation. To him alone belong deliverances from death. When Paul and Silas sang, everybody listened. Prisoners don't listen when you're singing. They probably don't have as many listening as intently when you're singing and everything seems to be going bubbly. But they sure listen when you have no reason to sing. And you should be yelling, hey, we're Romans. You're going to get in trouble for this. We didn't do anything wrong. But instead, what's coming out of your mouth at midnight 
in a day and age where they like went to bed when the sun went down. At midnight, they're still singing. And the prisoners were listening. There are people listening to you. And your song of freedom is a song that prisoners around you are going to hear. And when you sing those songs of freedom, you sing those songs of victory, you sing those songs of praise, you sing those songs of worship and adoration, you sing those songs of trust, even when it's the best thing you can do to just say, I trust you, God. Prisoners around you hear this, and your victory becomes their victory. When chains fall off your hands, they fall off theirs. And when you refuse to run, they go, I'm not running either, because something about them, they, they have an uncommon confidence, and I want to know where that comes from. Don't just sing when you think you're winning. Sing because you know you have the victory. Sing because God is good. Praise him because of who he is. Let me tell you, praise should never become transactional to you. I want you to believe that praise will open prison doors and chains will fall off. But don't just let it be a thing of, I need a prison door opened. I'll sing the song that opens the doors. Can you imagine? You know, my wife and I, we had a, a really rough anniversary trip last year. It was the trip that was supposed to fix the rough year before where our trip got canceled because of COVID. So we thought this is going to make it right. Everything's going to be better. Well, a lot of stuff went wacky. And the first thing that happens, we lost our luggage. Like on the layover, though, which is really bad. Because if you lose your luggage at your destination, you'll eventually get it. But if you lose it at the layover, who knows? And the guy that was talking to us from Air Canada, need I say more? <laughs> this guy talked to us like, this is part of life. I don't know why you're surprised. Do you know where our luggage is? I don't know that. You may get it tomorrow. He, he literally said this. You might get it in a week. You might get it in two weeks. I don't know. This is what happens in Vancouver, he says. Just like we're supposed to accept it. Oh, so what happens in Vancouver? Okay. Well, golly gee, I guess we'll go on our vacation with this. And some toothbrush I bought at the gift shop for way more than I should have paid. So me and Tia are standing there. We do the first thing we should do, which is pray. Lord, you know. We get together, pray. God, you know where the luggage is. <laughs> Father, we, we trust you. So we pray. But then all you got to do is stand there because we're waiting to talk to one more person that's going to take our number and maybe call us back someday. They didn't. <laughs> we went back to the airport and got our stuff. But we're standing there just waiting and... T and I have learned something. When we're going through a rough time, the best thing we can do, number one, is give it to the Lord. And number two is just to, like, realize that we're with each other. We may not be with our luggage, but we're with you. So I reach over to T and I said, I love you. And we always, you know, you do that because you, you just want to reassure each other. And I love you, T. I love you, too. But what if I had said at that moment, what if I said, I love you, Tia, and she goes, I love you, too. And I said, just, I'm just saying that so that they can hear me say I love you. Because if they hear me say I love you, they might help us more. So I love you, Tia. I love you, Tia. And I look over and go, are you listening? I love you, Tia. It's working, Tia. We're going to get our bags. Like, all of a sudden, she'd feel pretty like, oh, that, that I love you got really cheap really fast. Sometimes we do that to the Lord. God, I need my prison door open. So praise him, praise him, praise him in the morning, praise him. You're not doing anything yet. Praise him in the noontime. Like, don't let your praise become a transaction. First and foremost, praise God because he's God. 
And he's good and his mercy endures forever. And be grateful. Think of all that he's already done for you. Sometimes we, we, you know, the Bible says in Philippians 4, we quoted that. It says, bring your request to God with thanksgiving. When you bring a problem to God, you, you better bring it remembering of all he's already done. So you don't say, well, my belief in you is rises or falls on what do you do this week. That you remember, no, he's been faithful. He will be faithful. He's been faithful. He is faithful. He will be faithful. Paul said this. He delivered us. He is delivering us. He will yet deliver us. Bring it with thanksgiving. God, I'm so thankful. Probably the last thing you feel at that moment is thankful. It's because you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at the waves. Look at Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, the gratitude that comes. If all he ever did for me was die for me. That would be more than I ever have time to thank him for. But he keeps doing good things. I'll never have enough time to thank him, so why don't I take the time I have? And praise, praise. Don't just sing because you looked at the wrong scoreboard. Look, sing. Don't just sing when you think you're winning. Sing knowing that Jesus has already done this. I trust you. I know you. You never change. You never fail. I'm yours, and I will not fear, for you're with me. Can you stand up with me today? God is good. Amen? Do you believe that? When I was in Children's Church, we had a song that said, I'm I'm a little praiser. I'm a hallelujah raiser, and I stand about three feet tall. Four feet? Three feet tall. Maybe it was that confession that kept me so short. I don't know. I'm just joking. (laughs) I'm a little praiser. I'm a hallelujah raiser. (laughs) It was a cute song. Um, You might say it doesn't have a lot of theological content. But it it, it nailed something home that our identity is where we praise. You know, Jesus said, when... Jesus said, when you give, give this way. He said, when you pray, pray this way. He doesn't say if you give or if you pray. John says, we love because he first loved us. So we Christians, we're lovers, we're givers, we're prayers, we're praisers. It's who we are. It's not just what we do. It's who we are. It's who we are because it's who he is. So today I want you to bring, come on, guys. This is What Paul and Silas did not do was pretend they weren't in trouble. God does not want you to put on your fake act and pretend this stuff's not happening. Or pretend like it hasn't bothered you. Philippians 4 says you bring it to God. It says worry about nothing, but pray about everything. See, when it says pray about everything, that means you don't ignore it, you bring it to the Lord. Peter said casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. He's not just saying, cast your anxiety on me and I'll trash him. He's taking care of it. I want us to make the choice right now to rejoice. Make the choice right now that I am going to be a praiser. I will be a hallelujah raiser. I'll be taller than three feet. I will be (laughs) however tall I am and thank God for it. That's what I had to learn. But I will choose right now to turn what the enemy thinks is my defeat in the songs of victory, in the songs of thanksgiving, in the songs of praise, 
And I'm going to remind myself right now, I'm going to encourage myself in the Lord like David had to do. When all of his men just wanted to kill him, he had nobody to encourage him. He encouraged himself in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. When you encourage yourself in yourself, you have to make up stuff. Maybe it's not that bad. Maybe this is the truth. You're just, you're just fibbing and everybody knows it. But when you encourage yourself in the Lord, you are turning your eyes to something bigger. Your, your hope is in the Lord. Your faith is in the Lord. Your trust is in the Lord. So now your praise is not hollow. It's rich. It's got, it's got a foundation. It's got something behind it. It's got the goodness of God backing it. So, Lord, right now we turn our eyes upon Jesus. We choose today not to be shaken. Though the world around us shakes, the earthquake that threatens the world shakes out in our favor. It actually shakes the, the chains off our hands and the prison doors open and the shackles off our feet. Lord, we know that in Philippi that day, that earthquake probably freaked out a lot, a lot of people and they thought this might be a problem for us, but it actually was deliverance for your people. God, I thank you that even what we viewed as a problem, even what we viewed as scary, we look and say, no, my deliverance is coming. My deliverance draws near. My redemption draws near. Lord, that we won't be shaken. We won't be thrown off our foundation. None of these things move me. God, I thank you that today praise rises up in the hearts of your people. I thank you that today you are not a God who is distant. You're not a God who is unaware. You're not a God who is calloused. But you are a God that is near to your people, who knows us, who knows our frame. Yes, Lord, you even know our weakness. And you say, don't even worry about your weakness. For in that place that you're weak, I am strong. And I'm perfecting my power in you. So the weak will say, I am strong. I, I will say, when I feel at my weakest, no, I'm strong in the Lord. Because the Lord is strong, then I'm strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Today I pray that every single person in this room right now that has been faced with something that seems insurmountable to them would be filled with the victory of Jesus. That their eyes would not look at the things that surround them and say the walls are closing in on me, but instead they would look at their creator I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? It comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth. Thank you, Lord, that you are for us and not against us. Thank you, Lord, that you fight for us, that you are our champion, that you are our deliverer. That to you alone belong deliverances from death. David said,